This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with E. Ethelbert Miller. He's a poet and literary activist. I spoke with him on January 22, 2010, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of National Public Radio in Washington, D.C. This interview is included in our program, Black and Universal, Meeting E. Ethelbert Miller. Download the MP3 of the produced show at speakingoffaith.org. I didn't realize you were already there. This is Krista Tippett. It's good to hear your voice. Hi. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling all right. How's the weather out there? Uh, Well, it's it's mild, relatively speaking, all things being relative. Okay. That's not bad. You know, my kids who uh, go around in T-shirts when it gets above 40... How old are they? <laughs> my, son, my son is 11. And he, he needs, he, we need to have a talking with him. He starts wearing him. shorts when, the weather, when it hits 45. That's okay. <laughs> so it's pretty good, but he's not in his shorts. Okay, this sounds like we will take note of that. <laughs> How is it in Washington? Uh, it's you know it is um, some flurries and stuff coming down. Uh, I mean it's not that cold. Yeah. But I think they're expecting some sort of you know dusting actually. Yeah. Well, you know I'm so happy to finally be doing this. I've had you on my list for a long time, and uh, oh, our process you. is winding and slow, and we finally got to the point where we could call you, and uh, it's great to have you. Oh, that's very nice of you. Yeah. Do you have any questions of me before we start? No. Uh. Uh-uh. Okay. All right. Um, I'm just looking behind the glass. Chris, do you need... Are we okay? Can we go? Okay. We get to start. Um, I usually like to make small talk before we really begin the conversation. Okay. Because right. there's a danger that you veer into something that you want to have captured. So, um, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, where I'd like to start um, is where I start with everyone, whether I'm talking to a a preacher or a quantum physicist, um, is just to hear... I'd like to ask you to tell me about the... A religious or spiritual background of your childhood? How do you think about that? Well, I think it's um, something that is defined probably by my brother. Mm-hmm. I think that when I go back and look at how I grew up in the 50s and early 60s, uh, my, my brother, Richard Miller, who was seven years older than I, um, I think everything around faith revolved around him. Uh, he made the decision in 1962 to enter uh, a monastery located in upstate New York. Uh, it was something that, because I was a baby of the family, I was not part of the discussions. But I could see, you know, uh, the impact it had, uh, especially on my, my mother, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of sort of giving up your firstborn. It sounds very biblical. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I, I was aware of that. I also was aware of the importance of, of, of faith and religion because prior to my brother entering the monastery, he had an altar in his room at, at, at our house in, right. in the South Bronx. And so I was very much aware of him getting up in the middle of the night and saying his prayers, um, you know, lighting candles and things of that sort. Um, and so, you know, I sort of was influenced by that. And, you know, and you've written a lot about your brother Richard, and I've read a mm-hmm. great deal of it, and, and it seems like he was, um, it was very prominent and formative in your family and also a bit mysterious. Is that right? right. I mean, so, so I wanted to understand. Um, I, don't, I don't get a sense that your your parents were Roman Catholic, were they? Well, see, this was was very interesting. Um, when I was a student at Howard University, I was working on a paper, and I called back to New York, and I actually interviewed my brother. 
oh, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, and and I ask a question. I want to know, like, you know, this influence in terms of, you know, uh, religion and making this decision to go to the monastery. And what was behind that? Because for many years, I thought it had a lot to do with his reading of Thomas Merton. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, if we go back in the early 60s, um, Thomas Merton had a tremendous impact on almost a generation of yeah, people. Yeah, a lot of young men, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I look mm-hmm. at Julius Lester. He was influenced by um, Merton. Even the great port from Nicaragua on Ernesto Cardinal mm. was influenced. So I thought my brother was caught up in that. But when I talked to my brother, uh, he mentioned that the, the, the greatest influence on his life was my was our father. And and I had never looked at my father as being, you know, this religious person because he definitely was Old Testament. You know, my father was a very strict person. And I never saw him as being this sort of compassionate and very religious person. But later on, much later, uh, what I would discover is that on days, uh, on Sundays, when my father would leave the house, you know, and that was like his one day off, I began to realize after that he would go on Sundays to different churches. Just to sit, you know, listen to a sermon, not be a, a, a member of any congregation, but to visit. Uh, I found out after my father died um, that he had read his Bible um, like a divinity student. It was all underlined. Oh, and you didn't uh, know that while he was living. I did not know that. Huh. I really thought that my father, um, you know, coming from Panama, uh, I thought my father was sort of semi-literate. You know, I never mm-hmm. saw him read a, uh, a newspaper. And he would look at the Daily News, look at the TV listings, look at the pictures. Uh, I never saw my father with a book. Uh, and so, um, you know, that was my image of him. Hmm. But I guess because my brother was older than I was, he had a different relationship. And this is what I often tell people when I'm, you know, doing workshops or giving talks, that depending on where you are in your household, it has a different—you have a different relationship with your parents. You say you could come along as a baby of the family, and, and you're not thrown up in the ear in court because your parents are older now. Right. So I always tell people by the time I got along, I was probably dropped. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? Well, so you are known now um, for, for many things and in many celebratory ways. You're known as an African-American poet and writer. And I want to read you um, some lines, some lines, read you something back to you that you wrote okay, um, in sure. a speech in 1998. Um, uh, and this is about your upbringing and the time in which you grew up and then moving away from that and moving into adulthood and getting to know yourself and becoming who you are now. You wrote, um, although I was saddened by the April assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., I did not mourn his death as something which had affected my immediate family. Politics and social issues were seldom discussed in my home. My parents were working class and spent much of their time trying to put food on the table. The Civil Rights Movement and the Vietnam War were not things my family discussed at the dinner table. My aunts and uncles who lived in Brooklyn usually talked about what was going on back in Barbados and the rest of the Caribbean. They did not talk about Selma or Birmingham. Even Harlem was a long subway right away. So talk to me about how your consciousness evolved mm-hmm. from there when you went to, went away to Howard University. Well, you know, I think what you described there, or what I was describing because you're quoting me, is, is what happens among uh, many immigrant groups. You mm-hmm. know, you're very insular. You're very isolated from events. Uh, it's also something that when we look at the development of, of quote, black America, we, we have to make some distinctions. We know that there's a, a West Indian component, an African component, right. a component from the South. And, you know, um, my family was West Indian. And, you know, they were pretty much, you know, sticking to themselves. Um, many publications like Ebony or Jet, my mother did not permit into the house. 
you know, we weren't part of that black middle class. Interesting. You know? Yeah. Um, and so when the things like the Civil Rights Movement came along and stuff like that, it was not something in which, you know, we discussed around the table. You know, we might discuss the news, but we, there was no connection. And keep in mind, we could not point to a relative who was in Mississippi. We could not point mm-hmm. to a relative who was in Alabama or Georgia. So mm-hmm. we're cut off from that. So you've also written that when you wrote, um, when you went to Howard, I began to think about blackness, not the color sure. of my skin, mm-hmm. but the color of ideas. So tell mm-hmm. me what that means. Take me inside well, that. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a young kid. I'm, I'm, I'm graduating from high school early. Uh, but what I would say is this. My first job uh, was a place, I worked at a place called Bookazine down in Greenwich Village where it was a wholesale book company. And, you know, this was where you came, you know, if you were in New York to, you know, buy books. Uh, also, they had an outreach to other areas along the East Coast. And one was a store here in Washington, D.C. called Drum and Spear. And around 68, when I was working there, just out of high school, uh, a number of, of, of young black individuals would come up from Drum and Spear to get their books. I did not know who these individuals were. But when they learned that I was coming to, you know, Howard University in the fall, they were like big brothers for me. Oh, when you come down mm-hmm. Washington, look us up. Later on, I would find out that these guys were prominent members of SNCC, you know. Um, Wait, people what like was Charlie, SNCC? SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Oh, okay. It's a rights right, organization. Right, right. That these were individuals who knew Martin Luther King, you know. Right. Uh, I, I, I would discover this later. And um, for especially someone like Charlie Cobb, who I still know today, they were pretty much, um, you know, mentoring me and introducing me to um, African-American culture before I even arrived on the campus of Howard University. Uh, another person who would prepare me before I would leave the city was a man by the name of Louis Michaud, who ran the key bookstore in, in Harlem. And, you know, that was a bookstore that, you know, Malcolm X used to visit, you mm-hmm. know. And <laughs> Mr. Michaud was a race man. And he was important because, as I, you know, was saying, this was not part of my experience growing up in the South Bronx, mm-hmm. meeting these race men being pulled into the civil rights movement or the anti-war demonstration. So when I came to Howard, um, I was sort of baptized by this, you know, black college. Um, you know, people were wearing their afros. Um, the university had just had a major um, student takeover. Um, some of those individuals who were active in the student movement became some of my, fre- my friends in my freshman year. And so it was a radical departure. You know, I remember seeing Stokely Carmichael walking across the campus, (laughs) you know. And, you know, I mean, one book that I had packed, you know, was Black Power by Mm -hmm. him and Charles Hamilton. So I was ready. You know, my my afro was growing a little bit, you know, um, and I was beginning to um, connect with that part of me that um, I didn't know about. I began to take African-American literature classes and African-American history classes and had a number of good teachers that really opened the door for me. So, you know, there are phrases like African-American culture and African-American history. There's Mm African-American History Month. They get thrown around in American culture. Um, I'd like to just ask you, when I use those phrases with you, you know, where does your imagination go? Well, my imagination goes in terms of how these terms have changed over the years, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. You move from being colored to Negro to black to African-American hyphen or without a hyphen, you know. Um, these are terms, I think, that for people like myself who who were, you know, 
uh, activists also um, had certain political connotations. You know, where you would talk to somebody and say, well, that person's a Negro. You know, you put mm-hmm. that in quotes um, because of their political outlook on, on things. Uh, or, for example, you realize, like, for example, today, that you fall back on a term like black because it is a term that can embrace people of, of, of different nationalities. For example, someone who's Jamaican is going to emphasize their national identity the same way somebody who's Cuban. Right. So what happens, they may be black, but they, they're not going to say I'm African-American because they're Jamaican. Right. Uh, we see this, for example, with, our, with, with, with Barack Obama. Barack Obama is African-American, you know, in terms truly of— you know, African-American. <laughs> truly truly yeah, African-American. Truly African-American, right. And, and you see how some people get, well, you know, he, he's a little cut off from the civil rights movement in the South. Yeah, but he's African-American. Right, you right. Know? So these terms become problematic. But at the same time, you know, like most um, terms or, or labels, you don't want them to exclude people or be things in which you define in such a way that you can't get out of the box again. You know, here's what I'm also interested in. I think you have such an expansive perspective on this from all your years at Howard and and what you've done, what you've created in your working life also, in your writing life. Um, I I think that there are some predictable characters in the American lexicon. Um, Langston, you know, and people who you talk about as well, Langston Hughes, Mm -hmm. uh, James Baldwin. Um, But I wonder who is very formative for you. I would like to know some some people, some writers, some thinkers, some activists who for you are absolutely central to the African-American experience of your lifetime. Um, okay, but, but, well, but, you know, but maybe aren't as as well-known in the wider culture. Who do you wish well, were in that imagination? More well, broadly? I tell you, some of them are not African-American, but I, I, I say right okay. now, um, people who at least um, helped me define myself, and some of it is, is, is pretty much maybe in terms of how they think, um, their work habits, um, their friendship with me. But I would say two people. One is Charles Johnson, the novelist who lives in mm-hmm, Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles is a, a real influence um, on me. I mean, I like the, the symbolic connection with the fact that he was born the same day my brother was born. Um, but many ideas in, in, that I develop, he's probably one of the first people I share them with. Um, and then also because he is um, so extremely wide-read, you know, uh, and who is a practicing Buddhist, he's always can give me a sense of that moral, you know, compass that I, I'm trying to follow. Okay. You know, so the, I, so I, I really respect that friendship. The other person who I admire uh, is Doug Brinkley, the, the presidential historian. Okay. Uh, and, and Doug, you know, wrote the introduction to one of my collections, Whispers, Secrets, and Promises. And... I just I just admired a guy because of his productivity, you know. And I remember when he, you know, decided he would uh, write the introduction to my book, he interviewed me. And it was the first time I had ever been interviewed by a historian. I pretty much had interacted with literary critics. Right. But I was when I, when he asked questions, uh, he, he, he sort of made me think about things I had not thought about. But I think of Charles Johnson and Doug Brinkley as two key people. And I like the fact that they're extremely productive. I, lo- I love their work habits, you know, and so I admire them for that. Looking back over my life, um, the Pan-Africanist and, 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 and scholar C.L.R. James is key. Walter Rodney, who wrote, you know, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, then spiritually, I would say, because I had a chance to actually meet him, uh, and that would be Julius Nyeri, who was president of Tanzania. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I would actually 
take his name and shorten it and, and, and give part of it to my son. Um, mm-hmm. But I was always uh, uh, impressed by just the grace and just the spiritual aura that this man had. And so I was very happy meeting him, you know, during my life. Uh, and then other people who uh, are not African-American, Jimmy Carter. I mean, I okay. to meet Jimmy yeah. Carter uh, and to look at what he brought to his presidential administration, the emphasis on human rights. Um, there are many people around the world who will tell you, I'm, I'm alive because of Jimmy Carter. You know, he was trying to change American foreign policy. Uh, and then if we look at a person who has grown after the presidency, I think we would look at him as being, you know, you know, uh, uh, at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. Of what do you do after you've been president of the United States? You know, where are you going to go from now after you've been president? <laughs> you yeah. know, I think I'll do this. Well, you know, I think he's opened up a door, definitely for someone like uh, when we look at Bill Clinton, George Bush and, and also Obama, who are going to be still young people, you know, after the presidency. You know, this is it's, it's an interesting moment for us to be having this conversation because we're right about the year mark of Barack Obama's presidency, and um, you, you've written uh, uh, some a great deal about um, Barack Obama and 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 race, what he, what his election meant. Um, I'd like to draw you out a little bit more. You touched on this a minute ago, mm-hmm. but how Barack Obama, just his person as well as his accomplishment, has influence the language and meaning of of blackness well you know what happens is that we could go back and look at how many people didn't think he would be in this position Mm -hmm. you know on white as well as black so he's definitely you know surprised people in terms of his accomplishment and his achievement i think that's it's phenomenal Um, but when you look at all the profiles that come out you know one of the things that's very interesting is that we immediately talk about how eloquent obama is and you know and his speech giving and, and delivery is, is something that people highlight and probably is responsible for him being where he is today. Right. But then when we listen to the profile or read the profile, we find here's an individual who listens well. Mm-hmm. You know, there are many people say, well, if you're in a room, this guy listens. And that's a characteristic I think is very important for anyone who wants to be a good leader. Okay, But I think that what happens is that we have placed too much on... Um, you know, Obama's achievements in terms of trying to redefine even how we think. You know, I'm happy for him and I'm happy for the people of Iowa who believed in him, you know, who got the ball going. But, you know, one can't go back and say, okay, because Obama is president, there's no more racism. Right. You know, because, you know, I I feel that Obama is not necessarily the the proper tool to measure, you know, race relations. Right. Why why, why we use him as that, I'm surprised. It's like, you know, using a ruler for the wrong, as a wrong instrument, you know, measurement. Well, that, I, I'd like you to say some more about that. I mean, because Barack Obama's uh, campaign and his election has become, and his presidency has become this occasion for us uh, to talk about race or not to talk about race, <laughs> to, well, to relearn how difficult that is. Well, see, but see, let's not get distracted. To me, the person who's more important than, than probably Barack Obama is probably Howard Dean. Because Dean was the person who came up with the 50-state strategy that, you know, we're going to contest the Republicans in every single state. You know, I mean, and that's what you saw pull Obama through the primaries and also through the general election. So you're you know, saying it he, was an effective campaign, whether he were African-American or not, right? Exactly. That mm-hmm. when we look back on this, he was a, definitely the person who fused with the new technology. Okay. He took his message. I mean, the guy almost won Montana. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, so you don't buy the language of post-racial society, that he no, represents what, what, post-racial what, no. society. I, I feel that what Obama shows you, and I, this is how I measure social movements, um, 
I feel that Barack Obama shows you that white people have changed in the United States. Okay, white people have changed. That's that's the first. The same way, for example, if I want to measure the impact of the civil rights movement in the South, I go and I look at white people, and I look at how they might be different from their grandparents. Mm-hmm. If I want to look at the success of the women's movement uh, of the seventies, I look at the changing consciousness of men. Okay. okay? Yeah. Okay. So when I look at a uh, Barack Obama, I'm looking at wow, you know, I mean, my wife is from Iowa. You know, I went out to Iowa one year. Ex- after the, the Iowa primary with my my daughter, and I said, Jasmine, how did he win this? <laughs> what happened here? Yeah. You see? And keep in mind, when Barack Obama started out, black people were not, you know, you, I mean, Vernon Jordan wasn't even supporting him. Yeah. You know? Well, you, <laughs> so, also, you also supported John Edwards early right, on. Right, I was you? Because John you Edwards. Con- cared about his Be- emphasis on poverty. On, on poverty. Mm-hmm. And so this is very important in, in terms of, one, what Obama was able to achieve. And so what happens is that many of us didn't see this. And I think what he was successful about, he fused with the new technology. He fused in terms of how to get his, 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 his word out. And what we see now is that if you are any candidate, you're studying the model. You know, this is, what, mm-hmm. this is what happened. This particular historical moment, this person fused with the technology. Okay? Okay. Okay. So, so even though, let me ask you this. Even if you mm-hmm. don't want to take Obama as uh the center point of a discussion about race. You're saying that mm-hmm. that's, that's not the appropriate discussion to have around him. Talk to me about how you have observed um, the difficulty um, that we still have talking about race, or well, let's, as let's, you let's said, look, talking about right. it or not talking about it. Well, let's look, this is the difficulty. If you look at African-American people, if you look at black people, right, all of a sudden, Obama is ours. You know, we want Obama to have this black agenda, you know. Um, if you're Henry Louis Gates, you like say, hey, oh, you know, Obama, help me out, you know. What happens, we feel that, that he's ours, that, we, we, that he, has to, he, he has something in terms of we have to hold him accountable. Well, really, we, you know, he doesn't have to be that way. We really are not really responsible for him, his campaign being as successful as it was. And so what we have to realize is that we're one part of, a, of, of America, you know, of okay. people who decided that this was the person that we wanted to put in this office. And so it's a coalition of people coming together. And this is why it's so hard for Obama to govern, because he's juggling, you know, mm-hmm. all these different interest groups. You know, but what do we have to do as African-American people? We have to realize, wow, you know, there is a point in which white people will meet us halfway. You see, mm-hmm. you know, you know how many people were expecting him to lose? Like, oh, see, I show you, I know, black man, old man. If if he gets in there, somebody's going to shoot him. If he's going to do this, I mean, we had so much negative type of, of of thinking that just a simple election of Obama should have purged that or go clean that up. You know, you know, get the pus out so that now we can think clearly because that's what the problem was. Okay, keep in mind when you start dealing with race. Okay, you know, there's certain things that we need to look at. First of all, it's not a bad topic. Okay. You know, you know, I mean, I like I go in the morning, I say, I want to talk about race. I majored in this stuff, you know what I'm saying? But and that's important. It's not something negative. It's something that we can discuss. Also, we're not gonna have agreement on every racial issue. Mm-hmm. Okay? And and another thing, if for example a policeman hits somebody upside the head in Poughkeepsie, you know, you know, Tempe, whatever and it's sitting in here, it's not going to set the race back. Okay. You're saying, you're All saying. right, and and here's another question: Is it going to set the race back if 
Barack Obama turns out not to be a good president. No, the same Sorry. way if, if 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 Spike Lee puts out a bad movie, mm-hmm. it's not going to set back cinematography. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Yep. We, you know, it's it's like Jackie Robinson. Yes, you can make an error. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, we yeah. still are, in 2010. We are still looking at, at at black people as if they represent everybody. What do you, you mean by that? that? No, what do you mean by that? Well, what happens? Or you mean that one black person represents every black person? Everybody, right. Mm -hmm. So it's like saying if if Obama, you know, it's a bad president, we'll see, we're just not qualified. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, see, I, I'm, see, I'm a Larry Doby type of guy. I'm, I'm like, you know, the, you know, the guy who who integrated the American Baseball League that nobody remembers. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> everybody said, "Oh, Jackie Robinson, Jackie Robinson." Yeah, well, Larry Doby, man. <laughs> you know, you know. Well, I'm waiting for the the next black president to come along and do something. You know, like maybe maybe Obama's just John the Baptist. He isn't Jesus. He's just John the Baptist. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to talk about poetry. And for you, okay. I think talking about poetry doesn't mean that we stop talking about politics or right. political imagination. So there's, right. it's more of a, of a, of a, there's more of a bridge to that than, might, than there might seem to be on the surface. Mm. In fact, I mean, here's something you wrote that I, that I think uh, is, is very intriguing and, and beautiful, you know, that you said, I did not write to escape from my surroundings. I write to embrace my neighbor. Right. It is the politics of imagination which provides me with the vision of the type of world I would like to live in. Uh, in my ears, that's also um, a wonderfully religious or spiritual statement. Well, it is because, you know, what I've been telling people, you have to, and this is, I think is our responsibility, what I call language work that, that writers have to do. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to change the vocabulary, you know. I, I feel that if, for example, you know, we can bring back uh, into our vocabulary, the beloved community that people like, you know, Martin Luther King or John Lewis still talks about. I think that's a positive thing. If, for example, you know, words like nonviolence can become part of our vocabulary again, I think that's a positive thing. You know, what happens, certain words have just been forgotten. And so what happens is that, you know, we don't even realize the importance of what these words meant. I mean, no one talks about a, ut- a utopian society anymore. You know, even though when we look at some of the amazing things in terms of science and technology, it seems like we're, we're moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my my concern with it is that if we don't pay attention to words which we need to introduce into our vocabulary, we fall back and all of a sudden we're, we're using words like pirates, warlords, you know, and, and, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden, mm-hmm. what, what year is it, 1615 or something? Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I, I tell I, people. I love that. I agree with you. I'm, I'm all about uh, resuracting words we need. I mean, what are right. some more words that you love that we don't yeah. say enough? Well, we well, well, enough. There's, well, there's words that, that came out of nowhere that they're like, wow, you know, vetted. What, 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 who came up with that? Vetted. You know what <laughs> I mean? You know? <laughs> it's like, so you hit somebody over the head with something. Uh, or, for example, how we all got caught up in the last few uh, months with transparency. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. I, I, I tell, as soon as, soon as I hear that, I, I know somebody's wearing sunglasses. You know what I'm saying? Transparency. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, but these are words that, that all of a sudden um, move into our, our vocabulary. I knew we were going to have a problem when someone said, oh, yes, and I'm a blue dog Democrat. Oh, bark them up. You're barking up the wrong tree. Mm. Blue dog Democrat. What's that about? Mm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But these terms come into, you know, uh, on the language. They, they, they are perpetuated through the media. And all of a sudden, you know, we're reacting to them a certain way. So, so tell me some terms that you'd like to nurture. 
Well, I mean, nonviolence. Or, you, well, I don't know. Right, nurture, utopia. Reintroduce utopian right. society. Oh. Nonviolence, beloved community. Mm-hmm. You know, um, now, the beloved community is also um, a scriptural reference. Right, right. Mm-hmm. you're right, and and I, I think that you know there there are things, for example, uh, we're battling right now over the proper um, definition of jihad. You mm-hmm. see, because mm-hmm. jihad is pretty much a spiritual. Right, we're very you know, mixed up in our language with Islam. That's absolutely right. true. And and that and that needs to be that needs to be cleaned up because what happens? Our world is small, and 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 these words are going to move in to American vocabulary. If, for example, you look at our our our, our eating habits, look at how I mean. I'll use myself as an example. I was definitely come of age where we see a rising Latino influence. So all of a sudden, I'm eating tacos. Okay. Okay. You know, enchiladas. Okay. Now when I go out, here's my here's the falafel. You know, here's, right. you, know you see this sort of Middle Eastern. You know, yeah. And all of a sudden, what are we saying? If this is what I'm eating, okay. Hopefully, comes some sort of cultural understanding in terms of where does this food come from? Maybe. You see, because these words are beginning. <laughs> one to would come hope in. so, but one would hope so. Mm-hmm. You see, one would hope so. This is why I'm always struggling with the African-American community. In 2010, I use my sister as an example, we don't know the distinction between, no, you know, the person is not Chinese, they're Korean. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. Um, they're not Korean, they're, from, they're, they're Japanese. And knowing those, those differences are very, very important. See, the same way when we hear about somebody say, well, there's not that many black people playing baseball. You mean English-speaking black people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. You know? Right, and right. you have to say, okay, make room for this. This is where the language becomes necessary. If we don't use the language, we don't even see these people. Or we see them a certain way. I, mean, I think, again, as a poet, you have a very uh, keen ear for that. Well, hopefully, and this is what I call language work. You know, we need to make sure that poets or fiction writers, that we interact with politicians and, 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 and others in terms of making sure that the language is always clean. So, yeah. you know, I was really intrigued that you... Um, Obviously, in those years, the '60s and '70s, when you were uh, when you were becoming an adult, and um, and also really growing into your consciousness um, as a writer, also as an African American, also of blackness, as you'd like to say, mm-hmm. you know, you discovered Malcolm X, and I think that's the the Muslim figure um, that that it, many people tend to associate with that time, that African American Islam. But also, you discovered the Sufi poetry of Hasrat Inayat Khan. Right. All right. And that is that poetic heart of Islam that that I also know something about and I don't think the American culture at large has discovered yet. I mean, there's something beautiful you you And that you, and, and that and yeah, and that's and that's what I think my where my brother helped me out because mm. when I came to Washington DC and began to meet young African Americans who had, you know, who were Orthodox Muslims, who had, you know, mastered Arabic and taken their Hajj, when I interacted with them, you know, and, and keep in mind, I'm like 17, I'm 18 years old, their emphasis was they were using the Islam and, and they were really much concerned about building like a community, you see, mm-hmm. building a community. For me, I was more on a spiritual search, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and, and so what happened, my thing was like, I don't want to be going to Jumur on Friday and, and meeting my, my Muslim brothers. I'm really trying to see where my heart take is taking me, mm-hmm. okay? And, you know, keep in mind, some of the Sufis, for example, used to laugh at, at, at some of the other people, you know, going into the mosque because they would say, Allah's out here with us, you know, sitting right. outside the mosque. Well, that y- you can- yeah. You repented these beautiful lines of comment. The poet, when he's developed, reads the mind of the universe, although it very often happens that the poet himself does not know the real meaning of what he has said. True. I mean, well, this is a thing in terms of you go through life and there's this, this 
this mystery, there's this discovery. You know, I look about how I call it our, our earth walk. And, 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 and when we undertake that, you know, it, it takes sometimes a lifetime to understand what is, your, what is your real destination, what is your real journey about, okay, along with who you are. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is why when I'm interacting with people, I don't want to free somebody in time. I don't want to believe that someone doesn't have the capacity to change. Uh, and this is why, you know, people look up and, you know, I'm in a homeless shelter, I'm in a prison, you know, and, and I can see in my own life, you know, people who I met at one stage in life and where they are today is remarkable. Right, right. And what's the connection f- for you with that and with, for with me, poetry for me, it, and spirituality? Well, for me, it hits home because what happens, I've been on this journey, you know, uh, when I look at my... I think I would never run for public office because I know somebody will have something like, "Whoa, let me tell you about him. He he can't be vetted, <laughs> you know." And what happened, you know? I look at that and I said, "Well, there were things I had to do in my life, you know, um, and I'm glad I did that because I would not be the other person I am today." And so, in this sense, you know, I'm always looking at how people heal themselves, you know, how they how they continue to move forward, especially after crisis. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for me, the people I look at right now. I'm looking at Mark McGuire. I'm looking at John Edwards. I'm looking at mm-hmm. Tiger Woods. I'm looking at how these individuals, you know, when, once they had something, that was one thing. But now you take it away. Okay? Who mm-hmm. are they? Mm-hmm. Okay? How do they begin to put things together? And what now becomes of value to them? You know, you have to sometimes lose things before you understand the importance of things. Um, and, you know, something that I think, just getting back to Islam just for a minute here, something that you were part of and observed and formed by was um, what Islam meant to that building African-American consciousness. Uh, well, and, yeah. You know, and, and so I just want to yeah. ask you to, we, we again, we, we've talked in recent years a lot in Ameri- mm-hmm. American culture, uh, African-American Muslims will be mentioned as part of the whole picture of mm-hmm. uh, North American Islam. But, but I'd like to ask you what Islam has meant as part of the development, um, you know, for African-Americans in that way. Well, you know, you go back, and, and this is where, um, thanks to, you know, Malcolm X and Alex Haley, you know, we, we have a very good text. You know, the biography of Malcolm X is, is remarkable, and, and sometimes people um, overlook some of the things that, that Malcolm is saying, especially in, in the end of, in, in, near the end of his book. Yeah. And that is that Malcolm was, was able to see what impact a little bit of Islam was having on people. Oh, Hello? didn't go off by mistake at 1.30, did it? No. Hang on one second. We're getting Chris. Okay. Oh. He's on his way. I'm not sure what happened. We just lost them all of a sudden. Well, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes if they have an automatic cutoff, what if they cut off at 1.30 rather than 2.30? Yeah, um, I'll call them up right now and make sure that that's not what's happening. Okay. Hey, Krista. Yeah. Um, I I just got one response back from Patrick Bellegarde-Smith that I Mm -hmm. just wonder if maybe it informed this interview at all. Okay. I'll read kind of his response because I think it's interesting. Okay. 
Uh, American media altogether now refuse to mention that the first responders were more than 400 Cuban doctors doing good work in Haiti for several years now. American media are not reporting that Venezuelan and Cuban help is being resisted by the U.S. when Cuba and Venezuela are very significant allies of Haiti for the past 200 years, for the past 100 years, depending on when these countries achieve independence. The emphasis was not on water or food, but on landing 12,000 American soldiers in Haiti. Why so many soldiers? Please explain. Haitians are refusing to oblige American reporters who insist that Haiti will have riots and that Haitians loot. Is it because Haitians are black? The same arguments were made about New Orleans during Katrina. Racism always remains true to itself. When will that stop? Coming from people who are genuine in their desire to help, but remain racist nonetheless. Okay. Stop. Please stop. Okay. All right. Is Chris there now? Okay. Colleen's on the line with somebody at NPR. Okay. Okay, so hi, hi to each other. You should be back, and this time uh, I won't switch out. Uh, okay, <laughs> good. This, this is the same thing that happened to Richard Nixon. So, those <laughs> <laughs> it was, it's our fault. My apologies. Uh, all right, okay. Minnesota. Okay, <laughs> okay. All right, we forgive you. We forgive you. <laughs> but let's get going. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you? Could you still hear me? Or did you? Did I? Yeah, go I did? took hear you, and then and then and then everything disappeared. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, but I do know you were. T- hang on, just a second. You. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I'm, do you need to tell me something? No, I'm not. No, listening. no, I'm lo- looking for the behind the glass. We're okay. Are you okay, we're okay. with headphone um, levels you've got right now? Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, thanks. All right. You were talking about the uh, things that Malcolm X wrote, especially near the end of his book, and you were just about to talk <laughs> about that passage. Right. You know, what happens is, is I was talking about how, you know, uh, Malcolm was talking about how um, – African Americans were, you know, changing with just a little bit of Islam that they were getting. And what he was looking at was, you know, the contribution of Elijah Muhammad. That even though someone would say, well, it's, you know, what Elijah Muhammad is teaching is not Orthodox Islam, you know, it's this sort of little mixture thing that he has here. But still, with that, he was able to do remarkable things in terms of lifting up, you know, African Americans. And now, when you look at 2010, in which we really have a better understanding, thanks to Malcolm X and, you know, W.D. Muhammad, a better understanding of Orthodox Islam, yeah. well, that's what is really growing rapidly within our society as people enter this faith. Uh, and I think that what will be interesting to monitor is that African Americans, because we, we have grown up in the West, that we perhaps will be a key, will play a key role in the Muslim world mm-hmm. in terms of how does one balance one's faith and, and westernization. I think that's going to be really key. And to, to see in our country right now um, many African-American imams, African-Americans who are head of Islamic communities, uh, hopefully what we will also begin to see are African-American Islamic scholars who mm. can now sit down and define, you know, various terms and things of that sort and really bring this religion into the 21st century. Yeah, that's, it is really interesting to think about it that way. And, and and it also surprises me that Louis Farrakhan still gets all the attention from media. And what he represents at this point is such a, a small sliver 
of African-American Islam, which, as you say, has become mainstream. So sure, a, small, a small sliver, but, you know, something where you can you can overlook, which is a very interesting thing, which he probably borrowed from Gaddafi. But, you know, there's a point where, you know, you would see at Savior Day, Farrakhan would come out and he would have these, like, women bodyguards, you know, <laughs> like Gaddafi has these women bodyguards. Right. And, and someone would say, you know, what's up with that? But, you know, when you deal with, you know, a concern where people always have, uh, which is a debatable issue, is the role of women in Islam, you know, to, to have women in this prominent role where, you know, they're not five steps behind, but they're really five steps in front of you, I think does say something in terms of, okay, let's try to figure this out. You know, the Prophet Muhammad <laughs> have this in mind, you know, and, and, and I say that in terms of what happens Well, you did sometime. have four daughters after all. You know? Right, You don't try right. to imagine what that was like often enough. Right. <laughs> but, you know, these are things in which, you know, we have to look at the contributions that people have made. And even when someone polarizes a community, Keep in mind that polarization is sometimes very important in terms of the, 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 the movement forward in terms of, 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 of our of our lives. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's also um, a very important, I would say, Buddhist note that recur that runs all the way through your writing and your poetry. I, do you have a Buddhist practice or is, is this just an influence on you? Spiritual I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an influence the same way, you know, I can go back and I can see the Sufi influence and, and some of it comes through in terms of, you know, my reading um, individuals who become key in my life, you know, who I, who I learn from. So my friend Don Me in Seattle, my friend Charles in Seattle um, you know, practicing Buddhists are, are, are very important to for, for my learning and my development, you know, and, and that's something that I always try to look at. And then I think in terms of the peacefulness that I seem to associate with Buddhism, um, it's something I find extremely attractive, you know. Um, and so for me, in terms of images, I mean, if I look at my house, you know, I have a lot of Buddhist statues. Um, it is something that I'm calling going back and reading and... Um, once again, it's the same way with language. I think that there are certain um, Buddhist tendencies uh, that need to be, you know, appreciated by everybody. And that's why people like Tichnaham become very important mm-hmm. because he can show, okay, okay, you can be a Christian and, 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 and have this um, opportunity to meet a Buddhist along this journey. You could be a Muslim, and, and we're all moving to the same place. Uh, and, and that's important. And so for me right now, um, I've been learning a lot and, and observing and, 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 you know, you make mistakes, but you still try to, you know, follow a certain path. You you once wrote a little uh, essay about Langston Hughes' Buddhist smile. Yeah, <laughs> I like to like that. You know, and, and, you know, what happened, even today, if you, you know, play some tapes of, of, of Langston reading, you know, Langston seemed like a very gentle spirit, you know, mm-hmm. and a little yeah. laugh and a smile. Uh, and I always say that because... Um, you know, you see that with with Langston, and, and then on the other part, you take someone like Carter G. Woodson, you know, noted for, you know, starting Negro History Week, and, and which is now Black History Month. And, and, and Carter G. Woodson is like, never smiling, like, you know, like, black history is serious business, <laughs> serious <laughs> <Right>. business, you know. <laughs> and so I, I take, you know, Langston's smile, which to me is something which I identify in terms with the, with the poetic spirit. I, I think that there should be people that you should know their poets by their behavior. Mm. You know, they, 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 they should be these types of individuals. You know, I, I laugh a lot. You know, I'm sort of like a little laughing Buddha, I guess. You know, I'm Buddha Bert or somebody as it could be called. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, if, if, you don't, if you're not um, living your life that way, I, I think in this sense you're, you're missing the essence of life. And, and so that's the thing where, you know, you, 
you gravitate to these religions, hopefully that it's not simply about rituals, but we're infusing with a certain sense of, 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 of being in terms of getting you through this, this life. And that's what I think it's about. And, and you know, again, and this is all really wonderful to think about in and of itself, um, but also in the context of the African-American experience um, after the 1960s and 70s. Because, again, um, with the election of Barack Obama through the campaign, African-American religiosity was a theme. Um, mm-hmm. But, I, you know, these Buddhist and Islamic strains that are part of your formation and a part of many people's formation, I think, gets lost in the, in the larger American imagination about African-American spirituality. Well, this is why, you know, what's very interesting is that when you begin to look at the greater dialogue, you know, around religion, which and I think religion will be the, the major issue of this century, not not race, what you see is that, okay, African Americans are in all, are, we represent all these different faiths, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's extremely important. So, you know, you go somewhere, you're not surprised that someone is, is, is a Buddhist, you're not surprised someone is a Muslim, uh, and, and that gets away from the stereotype that we have, that we think that everyone's Christian. Yeah. You say, and so this is going to be part of an ongoing dialogue, um, you know, within our within our community, you know, and we haven't faced that. I'm waiting to see to have these sort of real serious dialogue between African Americans who are Christian and African Americans who are Muslim, mm-hmm. because you know we 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 haven't really had that dialogue. You've often used this uh, imagery of your spiritual journey as um, searching for your bowl or bridge. <laughs> right. And I'd like to know what you mean by that. I kind of follow it and I kind of don't. Oh, no, it, it's actually, you know, what happens is, um, and you know, the bowl is, is key in terms of, you know, you see this in places like Thailand where a person go out and then and they may beg for things and stuff like that and you put something in the bowl. But the bowl is everything. The bowl is what you eat out of. You know, the bowl is almost, I, I can equate it, it with like the you know samurai warrior where the the, the samurai sword is an extension of the samurai soul and mm. and I feel that that the bowl represents you know a certain humility you know it's 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 something that you constantly uh are aware of in terms of mindfulness when you when you're washing your bowl you you know that's mm. what you focus mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. the same way we need to focus on developing you know our spirituality so the the, the bowl washing or, or finding the bowl Say so not just washing the bowl, but finding your bowl. So, you know, you know, <laughs> finding your bowl. It fits nicely in your hand. It's the right color, texture, feel. You have your bowl. I have a friend of mine, um, you know, a writer, she's a filmmaker of New York. I think she might have took this as a a manuscript title. You know, I'm searching my bowl because you know she she felt you know it was a key thing. And I remember she called me. She said, "I have my bowl." You know, like, you know. <laughs> and, and you knew what her. she was talking. She called right. you because you would understand. Right, and she'd understand. You know, mm-hmm. and 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 that's something which is if you're sort of mentoring someone, um, it can be very helpful because on one level it's a very physical thing. You see, like you could send someone into a department store and say, okay, come back with your bowl. And what happens, depending on its feel, its look, its size, a person will have to make a decision. Mm -hmm. I'm going to pick this up out of all these others. Now the question can be, you know, how do you take care of it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you use it for? And And so what happens if, you know, you have a bowl and you're using it to drink, to eat, you know, all these other things, you know, as as well as just display in the center part of your house uh, in terms mm. of, 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 of uh, on an altar. That bowl is, is everything. If you decide to put your ancestors' ashes in this bowl right. or whatever, it becomes you know, a, a carrier of that. So the symbolism is, is, is enormous here 
Um, but I say each person has to go out and, and find their 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 bowl. No different than you find growing up in these t- fairy tales. Like you know, some guys running around. Oh, where's the woman who's going to fit this shoe? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, and then everything will be happily ever after. Yeah, I don't think you think of your bowl as a happily ever after object, though. No, it, no. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> what about the bridge? You say the bowl and or the bridge. Well, the the bridge. I I feel you know. I, I mean, I I look at the work I do as a as a as a writer, working in terms of different communities, and I I'm very much um, aware and committed to establishing cultural bridges, bringing people together. I think that's extremely important. That's another word that I feel has to be introduced. Uh, and when I look at my life, you know, I'm very proud of of the communities that I interact with. I'm very proud of the friendships that I develop, you know, or encourage between people who did not have a common ground. Um, and this is what I feel sometimes, you know, African-Americans can play a key role, like, for example, in terms of the Middle East, you know, hmm. or in areas where, you know, you're, 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 you, you know what it means to be an outsider. You know what it means to be oppressed. But you also know in terms of, you know, how to move beyond that. So, you know, this is what people, I think, around the world look at or used to look at when they would look at jazz or blues. They would see this universality. They would say, okay, mm. I see the hurt, the pain, but I also see the joy and hear the joy and the celebration. You know, teach me to play that music. Mm. But did you say you used to look at that and hear it or used to hear it? Yeah, because see what happens, you know, and and this is a thing that needs to be addressed. You know, uh, I think African-Americans have lost a a, a certain degree of their spirituality. Uh, And I say this in terms of going back and drawing upon like W.B. Du Bois, people who were looking at the spirituals, uh, even though Handy looking at the blues, uh, there was certain poetry. I think that when you look at our culture right now, culture right now, it's at a low point. And where the failure is, the failure is within black intellectual thought that black intellectuals, whoever they are, whoever they might wish to be, don't want to say this. You know, they want to maintain a certain hipness and coolness, and 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 you know, no one wants to talk about hip hop. You know, the same way somebody doesn't want to talk about radical Islam. You know, well, there there are things here in our culture that we have to extract and say this is a negative. This is something negative going on here. Not everything, but someone has to stand up. Just like, for example, as a parent. Okay, as a parent, mm-hmm. it's taken me a long time to realize it. Mm-hmm. Someone has to say no. Mm. Okay, no, no discussion, no, <laughs> no, well. but no, no, and see, and this is what happens is that the failure of black intellectuals historically coming through the last several decades to say no has opened the door uh, for a lot of things that that really now are difficult to put back. And so if you if you walk public if you go out publicly, and see I don't drive so I'm gonna, I'm you know all these other intellectuals they have cars but you know if you really want to you know have what I, Walter Rodney called the grounding with your people and you ride the bus and stuff with them <laughs> you you realize there are times there are times where I look around and I say okay where where are the subtitles <laughs> you know, I am I'm in here I know people are speaking what are you saying hmm. or for example you know I remember when someone like my father would use a word of a, a profanity it was eloquent. You know, you didn't hear it every day. But and don't you think that, I mean, you have written, your second, your most recent memoir, your second memoir, is about getting into these years beyond 50, where you, you start right. to be on the other side. <laughs> the The younger no. generation is definitely on the other side of the line. I'm there with you. Um, and, do, I mean, how much of that do you think is, is, is about age? 
Um, and also no. the fact that we live in really rapidly changing times, although no. I think everyone has always felt no, that. I, no, because I, I can tell you, I can show you a decline. Okay, I'll show you a decline. Mm. I cannot fold sheets the way my mother could. <laughs> it's a hey. Now, when you have fitted sheets, my daughter doesn't even know how that how that works. What happens? There's been there's been this this decline. Lord, you know, I'm just joking. What happens? Even when we look at culture, language, and things of that sort. I mean, I ask myself, who is advancing our music today? Not just taking care of it, advancing it. All right. So, so here's a question I wanted to ask you. You um. You wrote at some point that you you named the Afro-American Studies Department magazine that you once uh, edited after John Coltrane's album, Transition. Transition. And you wrote this. Train was going where I wanted to go. The spiritual development in his last years, the pursuit of music as a way of talking to the Lord, as in dear Lord. John Coltrane was either our heart or our soul, the goodness we needed to survive the madness of winter in America. I could listen to a love supreme all night long. And the question I wanted to ask you is, what sustains and nourishes your children now, the way this oh, music children. sustained and fed you? Because you, your children are adults, right, or young adults? My children are adults. My uh-huh. children are adults, and, and, and there is a difference between them, okay? Okay. Uh, and, and I remember this clearly. Um, we went to Tower Records. This is how long ago it was. This is before iPod. We went to Tower Records over at George Washington University, and I think my daughter must have been like maybe... 15 or whatever. And so we said, okay, we'll meet back here at the cash register. You can go and get, you know, the, the, the two records you want to get, the CDs or whatever you want to get, and, and we'll meet back here. My daughter comes back, you know, and this is without me encouraging. She got a little, you know, like some, she got a little Miles Davis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> My son shows up and he's got some CDs with the person's got on, you know, gold teeth. They got yeah. this. They got a little, 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 little um, label on it, like, you know, provincial advisory thing. <laughs> and my daughter looks at me. I look at her. And what happened? There is a separation in terms of music. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and television, you know, for example, what happened is I kept cable out of my house. Okay, until, you know, my, my daughter said, well, I can't see BET, and she thought it was psychologically damaging. I said, you know, it's psychologically damaging if you do see BET, <laughs> but that's another story. <laughs> but what happened, yeah, and see, keep in mind, if I had let that in, my daughter would have been consuming those bad videos on BET. That would have become part of her 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 vocabulary and, and her images. I kept that out of the house. Now, with my son, because I was raising my son to be a basketball player, he had to listen to all that stuff. <laughs> You yeah. know, I mean, he had to listen. To, I mean, else his game would be very, very soft. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So what happened is that, you know, I could see culturally what was happening in my household around music, okay, uh, around, you know, um, the peer pressure, okay? You know, uh, I look at my son today, right? Mm-hmm. My, in fact, this has happened this past Christmas. You know, my son surprised us, you know. He came down from from, from Pennsylvania. And the first thing... My daughter looked there when, he, when we came to the house. He said, it's Christmas. Why are you wearing a tie? <laughs> Why are you wearing a tie? So change is possible. Oh, change is enormous. <laughs> but so, so is there, is there a, a John Coltrane for them, for their generation? Well, you know what happens is... Or a few, is, you know, a range. We don't want to... You you want you want to say, for example, and this is a thing where we just saw, you know, the death of Michael Jackson. Mm. What happens is that because of how our technology and and how uh, we're packaging things, it's going to be interesting how someone will emerge. Okay, 
you have to reach a certain level perfect to to really go to the top now mm-hmm. you see mm-hmm. i mean this is why you know i look at american idol and i laugh at it because what i feel american idol does is reward mediocrity you're never going to hear a really great voice you know it buys in the whole thing that anybody could win and that's good for ratings and sales but not for music lovers mm-hmm. you see but what happens is that the way things are now you know we have to look in terms of where that really um, person who's taking something to another level is coming from. And that's why in my second memoir, you know, I stumble upon Ichiro's, you know, Ichiro, you know, Seattle Mariners, because I saw here with somebody almost in the age of steroid baseball and all this other stuff, hmm. perfecting the game, hmm. perfecting the game on almost every aspect. And when you begin to see that, you know, like somebody looks at like um, Peyton Manning, you know, that somebody is really taking what they do to a level where you thought no one could do that. Okay, mm-hmm. and we have to ask ourselves, okay, where does that occur across the board? Okay, so if, for example, we look at Barack Obama, okay, we can disagree with his policies, but we know the guy looks good as president. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, I mean, the guy looks good. You know, yeah. you, you wanna, if you had to sell the American, well, you know, even now when you got to do the little, you know, the, the, the posters and you hate the policy, but he, the guy looks good. Yeah, you've you know, made Jack, this connection between, um, you said that Barack Obama has made a connection in the American imagination between blackness and beauty, that Barack and right. Michelle Obama have done that. Exactly. In fact, that's what I, I tell people, that the Michelle Obama's uh, impact will probably be greater than any legislation that Barack Obama will pass. And why? is because she shifts the paradigm in terms of beauty. That when I saw, you know, a year ago, uh, a number of young white girls, when they were asked who the most beautiful woman in the world was, they said, you know, Michelle Obama. I said, oh, wow. Mm. This really frees up the little black girl who was in kindergarten being, being, being laughed at in terms of her color. Yeah. If, 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 if now a girl with blonde hair, you know, um, you know, this like sends everybody to the to, to the tanning to the tanning room. You know, because yeah. what happened? The standard of beauty has shifted. You see, and and that becomes very very important in terms of a, a race feeling good and 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 comfortable about itself. You see, and this is why you know people want Obama to be successful because it is on the world stage. And this is why when you look at the inauguration, you look at you know, the election night, you see people crying. You know, you see Jesse Jackson. I always tell follow yeah. the tracks of Jesse's tears, you know, yeah. because what happens is that there's so much that, that you never thought could happen. And it's been kicked over. You see. Mm-hmm. But the next thing you have to ask is what's coming after this? You see, you know what? You know, when you have what, what comes after this and, and what happens, even Obama will show it, will shift it back to us as people that, OK, this is what we have to do. I can't do this. I'm just president of the United States. Mm-hmm. You see, I mean, yeah. I mean, I never did you did you I never looked to Ronald Reagan's, you know, every day I got up, Ronald Reagan saved me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, yeah. you know I, I didn't demand, I didn't say, well, George Bush, man, look, I'm having a hard time doing my homework. George, help me. <laughs> you know, and we're we're almost dealing with Barack Obama the way people looked at Joe Lewis. And this is captured in Ernest Gaines novel, Lesson Before Dying, where we hear a guy being sentenced, you know, to be executed and, 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 and he and he's afraid of dying and at the last minute he help, yells out, Help me Joe Lewis, help me Joe Lewis mm. you know. Right. And so what happens now, you know, you're Henry Lewis Gates and you're saying, Help me Barack Obama, help me Barack Obama well, like, he gets a <laughs> he gets a response to that call, but everyone won't. Yeah, but the fact that people make that and see him that yeah. way. You see, and we just saw recently in the tragedy in Haiti where, where a parent was saying, asking Obama, you know, personally, do something, save my daughter. You see? Yeah. And, and what happened, that's a tremendous amount of weight, 
See, the same way you saw Martin Luther King, okay, the weight that you take on that if you know that if there's fire hoses or a little girl gets knocked down or whatever, you're responsible for that person's life. You, anyone. Because they're out, right, because yeah. they're out there following you. And, and that's a tremendous responsibility. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what I think I'd like to do now, um, we have about a half hour left, um, is I'd love for you to read some of your poetry and just okay. to talk about some of that. I think we asked you to bring some things that meant something to you for whatever reason. And um... Okay. What I'll do, I'll, I'll read some of these poems that sort of captured um, the beginning of our conversation where I was talking about my brother. Okay. And so this poem is from First Light, and it's called Fire. I am ten years old and share a room with my brother. At 17, he dreams of becoming a priest or monk. I am too young to know the difference. In our room, the small bureau is an altar covered with white cloth. Two large candles stand on each end. My fair fire begins in this room. 1962. My brother Richard enters the monastery. What do I remember? Not much. The trip to LaGuardia Airport. Not too many colored people were flying in those days. One had to walk out to the airplane. I remember that. A number of us, family and friends, had gone to see him off. We laughed at Richard's head in the plane's window. We were surprised we could see him and that he could see us. We kept waving until the plane turned around, slowly went down the runway, took to the air, and flew. My brother was gone. It would be years before I understood that he could have been gone forever. I think that evening my father went to work as usual. My mother fell across the bed in her room crying. My sister told me to hush and be quiet. I was the youngest, the baby, the other. How was I to understand the Lord's calling? And this is um, Faith. My brother Richard returns home from the monastery. I was not home. My mother, sister, and I had gone to the store. Only my father was home. How happy he must have been to open the door and see his firstborn. To give your son up to the Lord is one thing. To receive him back is another. I would not have been surprised if my father had lived the rest of his life on his knees. I knew how grateful he was. Faith is the meaning of love between men. And I'll read this poem. Um, this is a poem for Oscar Romero, the archbishop who was assassinated in 1980 in El Salvador. I am the land, a poem in memory of Oscar Romero. I am the land. I am the grass growing. I am the trees. I am the wind, the voice calling. I am the poor. I am the hungry. The doors of the church are open as wide as the heart of a man. In times of trouble, here is a rock, here is a hand. God knows the meaning of our prayers. I've asked our government to listen. God is not dead, and I will never die. I am the land. I am the grass growing. I am the trees. I am the wind, the voice calling. I am the poor. I am the hungry. He who is resurrected is revolutionary. He who is resurrected believes in peace. This 
is the meaning of light. This is the meaning of love. The souls of my people are the pages of history. The people of El Salvador are the people of the world. I am Oscar Romero, a humble servant. I am the land. I am all the people who have no land. I am the grass growing. I am all the children who have been murdered. I am the trees. I am the priests, the nuns, the believers. I am the wind, the voice calling. I am the poets who will sing forever. I am the poor. I am the dreamer whose dreams overflow with hope. I am the hungry. I am the people. I'm Oscar Romero. Hmm. So those are a few poems. You know, um, your fusion of art and politics um, took you out from the black experience, as you've written, to to this kind of uh, um, focus, to Latin mm-hmm. America, to women writers. Um, but, you know, that also makes me think, uh, get back to something you said a minute ago about the way the black experience, especially in your lifetime, um, distinctly enables you or empowers you to make a connection with other people around the world. And that's, and well, that's how I was raised, you know, and mm-hmm. it took, uh, it took me going off um, to college, um, you know, coming to Washington, D.C., actually coming south, um, to understand that, you know, my father was born in Panama. You know, that, you know, the rest of my family was from Barbados, you know, that I was beginning to, to, to understand that, okay? Um, and, and that is, is very important. And then when I look at, you know, my beginnings, when I look at my elementary school, um, PS39, the, the same elementary school that Colin Powell went to, actually. Um, oh, really? Right. When I looked at that, that school in the South Bronx, I look at my classes, the, the level of diversity uh, was unbelievable, you know, we had many people who were Polish. We had many people who were Chinese, you know, um, African-American. We were such a, like a U.N. In fact, uh, one of the, the major uh, transformations I, I underwent was when I went from PS39, which was this fantastic sort of U.N. elementary school, mm. to Paul Lawrence Dunbar Junior High School 120, which was com- was all African-American. I, I, I came home crying. You know, I had I, 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 never been in a school um, in terms of, of all black kids running around, things of that sort, you know, uh, and I was I was I was really isolated and, and, and traumatized actually, hmm. you know, because I came from a place in which you know many of my friends were were were, were actually not African American; they were Puerto Rican, they were Chinese, you know, and so you know those individuals, those friendships, I think, um, you know, molded me, and so as I got older, um, you know. Um, and living in parts of D.C., you know, like Adams Morgan and Mount Pleasant, yeah. you know, I, I immediately gravitated, you know, the people from Nicaragua or Guatemala, you know, um, because that was what I was uh, accustomed to. You wrote somewhere that, um, here, a question, but then what is black history but a series of coincidences that run parallel to everything in the universe? Right. Well, you know, I mean, that's the thing where you have to have to claim. You know, if 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 we look at what happens, you know, to the black experience, you know, we we seem like you know as writers, as artists, and this is why you have certain African American artists. They they try to you know move beyond the label. Well, don't label me as an African American artist. I'm an artist. You know, and you know we and we get stuck in that. You know, my thing is that if you're black, you're universal. You know, that's why. <laughs> you know, I I I said you know. 
know, we're all black poets at night. You know, you turn the lights out, everybody's black, you know. <laughs> um, and, and this is, you know, once again, this is how I approach blackness. That is, it's celebratory, you know, that is something that we embrace. It is not a burden, you see. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's something that I don't want to move away from. I want to I want to move closer to. And, and, and in the process of that, you know, um, and it will find me at times at odds with people who might define themselves as black nationalists because I feel that after you go through this whole thing of who you know who you are, which is wonderful, and you, if you want to trace yourself back, you know, to kings or, or, or the pyramids or whatever, that's nice. But then it's very important that you turn away from this narcissistic mirror and you begin to look out the window and you begin to realize there are other people out there with different histories, different mythologies, and, and that... Your job now is to, you know, enter out into the world. Um, your history, your your ideas is, is a gift, and you're also in a position where you receive the gift of other people's culture. Mm. And, and, and that's the exchange. You see, that's mm-hmm. the exchange, you see. And, and, and that's the thing that, you know, we're beginning to see now in 2010. African Americans are just moving around the world. And mm-hmm. what happens is that, you know, um, they're realizing, okay, you know, I've spent, you know, X number of years in Spain or, or Italy. And, and they are moving around and realizing, you know, they they are there. They belong. You know, I, I, I look at how trapped I was the first time I went to Norway. You know. How uh, trapped? I, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah. Trapped in terms of people say, oh, man, you know, you're going out there. You're not going to see it. You know, it's just it's all, the country's all white, you know. Right. <laughs> and Let's I get see. off the plane. I get off the plane. And, you know, you're going through customs. And the first person who welcomes me to Norway is a black woman. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, it's a black woman, you know. Yeah. And yeah. as I walked around Oslo, it was a very, you know, very um, a multicultural city, you know. But what happened? I was walking around thinking everybody was going to be a Viking, right. you know. Right. Uh, and, and, and what happened? is that if I don't travel, if I don't, you know, touch down in, in the city, and I walk around with that. And then the other thing which I've always looked at is that, you know, if I'm a young white kid, I can, you know, you know, go anywhere and, and no one's, you know, say, oh, what are you doing here? But as soon as you're a black person, you show up in, in these, you know, like outside, you know, the, you know, you know, you're in like, you know, Wyoming, you know, it's like, what are you doing? Well, I'm hiking. <laughs> what are you doing? You know, all of a sudden mm. we have to explain our presence, you see, uh, and and that is something I feel is 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 is, is a problem that you know we are still locked in, or as black people we don't want to go certain places because mm-hmm. you know we don't want to be the only black person there. How will we be perceived? That's why sometimes those of us who are very cautious, you know, we go somewhere. Oh, there's another black person. Okay, all right, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just like I was, I was walking around parts of Washington, you know, late at night. I said, oh, there's an Obama poster. Okay, this is good. This is like you know, <laughs> somebody somebody left out the breadcrumbs. I can get home. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. You know, and and what happened? I say that, and I probably you know, if you were to do these surveys, no matter how old you get. That you're still dealing with these little moments in which you're not certain about something. You know, one of the most beautiful moments of the Obama administration was his first press uh, 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 meeting where he comes into the room to meet the press and they all rise up. He jumps for a little second. He's like, whoa, I'm president. You know, <laughs> and, and, you, know like, you know, like all of a sudden, it was, you know, it, was, it, it, it caught him. You're like, whoa, mm. you're president, you mm-hmm. know. And, and, and that's a, those are very small things that, you know, you realize, okay, he's still thinking this. Yeah. And when, what about the rest of us who haven't had these experiences, you know? And and this is the thing I feel that at the end of the day, if we are celebrating, you know, 
who we are as black people. You know, we have to realize that it's healthy to be black. You know, it's beautiful to be black. Uh, and, and, and it's one of many colors out here. And, and, and we have to make sure that we don't abuse it. And, you know, we're always polishing ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, and not because we want to, you know, try to impress somebody. But the fact that this is what we do. This is the tradition um, that's been passed on. This is our legacy. You mm-hmm. know, I tell people, mm-hmm. you know, if you're not going to work as hard as the boys or Garvey, you know, I always tell people, what happened? You imagine if these people had laptops, you know, <laughs> um, they, they would be, I mean, they were productive or the work habits of Booker T. Washington. That's your tradition. See, I remember Whitney Marcellus saying, you know, you know, I dress up a certain way because I respect the music. Mm. You see, I mean, you, yeah. you see, I, and I can use that quote as a standard. Okay, you respect the music. Now, if your pants are hanging off your butt, and you know what is that about? Now, now we hear a lot about that, but what are we saying? Nobody wants to come in and say, okay, if you walk around like this, you're going to be treated this way. Now, Stanley Crouch, who's conservative, he said this. You know, he said this to Black You. He said, look, you're complaining about what happened when you go into the store, but if you walk in the store like you're going to be treated that way. And that's not to say that there's not going to be situations where it's just pure racism and somebody's trying to say you don't belong in this store. Do your, okay? do your kids, do you have grandchildren? No, no, no. no. I'm, just, you know, I'm just dealing, you know, I'm dealing with, bless my, 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 my daughter now. My daughter's a lawyer, you know, mm-hmm. and that was, that's been interesting just to see, you know, um, her um, move around the world because what mm-hmm. happens now. So she's doing you know, what you're describing here. She's doing what she's got me, and, you know, she's making her play, and my daughter's a little more conservative than I am, you know, and, and sometimes she said, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. You know what I mean? You know, she just was doing some jury duty. She's like, Daddy, what, what is this? You know, she's, I said, you're a lawyer. You know, but, but you know, you, you, you should have known that you're going to get caught if you did this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. You know, and when my son, you know, I, I look at my son, and, um, my, you know, he's an assistant basketball coach up at Widen University. You know, I watched him play basketball, and, and what he taught me and this is the thing I tell people I learn from my children you know you know I learn from my children I don't take the position all the time that that parents are are, are always right now I know as a parent I have to say no mm-hmm. I can't compromise mm-hmm. on that no I hear and, you saying that loud and clear yeah, yeah but at the same time there are times where I learn from 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 my children and with my son you know my son is like you know we we, we win daddy we win you know and and I tell people I've never worked a day as hard as my father, and I've never have pushed my body physically as much as I've seen my son physically put him, you know, in terms of being on a basketball court, in physical pain. I've never seen, you know, somebody push his body to another level that way because of desire to win. And, you know, those are the things in terms of work habits. When I go back to, like, I was talking about Doug Brinkley and Charles Johnson, you know, they were in the literary world. I'm always looking around for these models, you know, and when I look at my, my children, I, I, I see that, you know, there are things there. I mean, they're both very, very principal, mm-hmm. very, very principal, you know, and they remind me sometimes about that. So, you know, when you look at your children and their friends, um, how did they make you think uh, and feel about the up-and-coming generation? Well, you know, I felt there were things in both my son and my daughter's life that I think um, helped them become who they were. Uh, I looked at my my daughter. I had her in a um, program called Operation Understanding, which is a wonderful organization that brings blacks and 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 and, and Jewish young people together, and they, you know they they mm. learn from each other, and and that has been uh, that has been a really unique experience for her that she was able years later to always draw back on, 
you know, mm. that sort of friendship. I looked at my son in terms of, you know, when you go through sports and you're really excelling and, and, and you see some of your friends, you know, making it to the NBA, you know, what happens, you begin to understand exactly how good you are, you know, you understand what it takes to win, and you understand who you are off the court, mm. you see, mm-hmm. off the court. And and that's the thing where we say we use sports in such a way to um, bring out the character in a young person, you know, we use the sports in such a way to give that person the 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 the, the, the discipline, and the thing that there are rewards that yet that okay you did such and such and that's why you have a trophy, right. okay, mm-hmm. and 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 so that's what I, I I try to do. I feel if 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 I didn't have the sports uh, for both my son and my daughter, um, the distraction would have been there. I I always talk to parents and I say okay. Um, those after-school hours are key. Mm-hmm. And if, for example, your son or daughter is very passionate about something, hockey, you know, you know, soccer, whatever, push that because if they're not doing that, they're going to be doing something, and that something may be something that you'll be troubled okay. about, right. you know. Uh, and, and so that's the thing about parenting. And, and it's not everybody's not cut out for it, you know. <laughs> uh, everybody's not cut out for it. You know, it takes a, a tremendous degree of patience, um, compassion. The rewards are unbelievable. You know, and I think that you find that out as you get older. You know, I look at, you know, so many old people who have children and their children don't come to see them in nursing homes. Right. Okay. And, and, and they wind up, you know, dying alone. I think that when you raise your children, they understand, you know, the, the seasons of life. You know, they are committed in terms of, of, of helping you um, be there. And, and so um, I look at how my sister has taken care of my mother. And, you know... Um, when I look at my daughter, I know that I will be taken care of her because she has those values. Hmm. You see? Yeah. Do you do you have the poem Salat with you? Do you have that? Um, yes. I, I, I love you. And, you know, I should have... Um, I'm, I had your poems and I was marking and turning pages and I didn't bring them with me. So that that one I remember the That's title. That's why we're and going I, to get you a Kindle. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this is Salat. Poetry is prayer, light dancing inside words. Five times a day, I try to write. Step by step, I move toward the mirror. I prepare to recite what is in my heart. I recite your name. You know, what happens with the um, Internet um, Mm. is interesting how um, this poem, for example, I remember someone from Jordan contacted me. Um, and they like the poem the same way in 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 one of my books, um, "How We Sleep on the Night We Don't Make Love." I have a number of poems in which I created a character by the name of Omar. Yes, um, yeah. And I created Omar because of the changing demographics. You know, mm-hmm. you walk into a school and there are more young Muslim kids who are who are there. Yeah. And and it's always good when you know a kid comes up to me, especially like in elementary school. My name is Omar. You know, <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, you know, he's visible. You see, and and he's proud, and 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 I found that you know, in in those poems, I was using humor um, to sort of um, uh, serve as a bridge in terms of bringing people together, and and using these poems in such a way that if I go into a classroom, uh, a teacher can follow up my reading in terms of raising questions. You know, uh, how many you may have Muslim friends? You know, anything about Ramadan? You know, it's a lot, and that's where the beginning. Of, of of understanding takes place. I look at myself um, arriving on the campus of Howard University in uh, 1968, and I had no knowledge 
of Islam, which was that you know, in terms of the the, the number of people in the world who are yeah, Muslims, right? And 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 in 2010, we just can't have that, and 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 we can't have a generation of people who feel that as soon as you say Muslim, they're they're associated with something negative. That they have to begin to to understand that this is a religion and a faith, just like Christianity and Judaism, you know, and others that have been here. And, 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 and it requires now that we understand it, you know. And as Americans, it becomes very important because our country, first, before we deal with issues of race, is dealing with, you know, religious expression, right. you know, and tolerance. I mean, this is why people are coming, you know, to this, to this new world, you know, to worship the way they want to worship. And, and that's something now that as, as our world seems smaller, that we want to make sure that, you know, when someone gets up and says, well, this is a Christian nation, oh, no, it isn't. It never has been, you know, and this is where we make sure that our documents, you know, which is what makes us American, protects everyone in terms of their freedom to worship. Do you have other, um, do you have other poems or other passages you'd like to read? Well, I tell you what, I I I, I went back and I looked at, and I it's not my mitten I read, but yeah, it captures a lot. It captures what you were talking about the bowl, and this is the introduction that my friend Don Me wrote back in 2000, which is the introduction to my small little book, Buddha Weeping in Winter. And she wrote the following. It was the winter of 1997 when Ethelbert first came to my basement apartment in Seattle. He talked to me about his brothers and father's lives. He spoke of his journey to Central America, Africa, and the Middle East while folding a paper napkin I had placed in front of him. He would also bring his hands together half-folded like a lotus flower and speak of a bowl. He often let his chin fall into his hands, then withdraw into silence. These silent moments spoke to me of the pain in his heart and his deep longing for a bowl. I continued to serve him tea, mint tea, green tea, cinnamon, black tea. I knew if he kept drinking tea, he would find the bowl somewhere in his heart. A bowl is hollow without tea, and tea is homeless without a bowl. Holding tea in our bowls, his Buddha and mine met in winter, in silence, in understanding. Ethelbert is my best friend. His Buddha poems are impermanent as snow. When touched, they melt into rain. He refers to a lake in front of my place as the river. He tells me that it is moving despite its stillness. Despite falling leaves and petals, Ethelbert's prayers touch the clouds. His Buddha sweeps letters and footprints. He weeps for the snow the endless journey of our hearts. His stillness invokes our rivers to flow, to merge with our silence, our Buddha. And I'll read the, the title poem, uh, Buddha Weeping in Winter. Snow falling on prayers, covering the path made by your footprints. I wait for spring and the return of love. How endless is this whiteness, like letters without envelopes. Hmm. Well, this is wonderful, and what I think we should do is stop here. I think it's possible that when we're producing it, we mm-hmm. may ask you to come back in a studio and read a couple of other poems. You know, that okay. might Well, you seem... have a nice voice. You can read, and you know, how <laughs> well, lips yeah. Well, maybe we'll, maybe we'll read them from here. But I, yeah, and you're right. I mean, sometimes we do that if we're yeah, having another, readings another just to have another voice. But right. But that's possible because it occurs to me because I think I want this to be. Um, 
you know, not just a, to be structured around poetry, a conversation mm-hmm. woven with poetry rather than just a conversation or, About. And, you know, and that the poetry, poets are, poetry isn't thrown in, but it, it's part of the fabric. Okay. Um, and I, you know, we've touched on so many places. I, um. I wonder if there's any place we haven't gone, something that you'd really like to talk about, maybe something that's new that you've been thinking about. Well, the, about. the thing that I, I feel I, I sort of tried to approach in my last book, um, The Fifth Inning, mm-hmm. was to, to look at issues of depression, you know, yeah. and, and how that, I think, is very important in terms of working your way through that so that you can celebrate life. You know, I, I, I have friends who have problems getting out of bed, you know, um, I've had a number of friends who have, um, you know, committed suicide. Yeah. And, and, you know, so I'm, I'm very concerned about that, you know, in terms of, um, you know, what the symptoms are. Um, you know, just making sure that if you're ever in a situation, you know, you might be able to um, give advice that can be life-saving. Yeah, and I, I think part of your integrity as a as a person and as a writer that other people have noted in you is that you... You do talk about the breadth of your experience, and it's not all light. There's there's darkness. There's depression. Right. Um, and that's what ties back to baseball. You know, you and your your success. You just get three hits every ten times you get up. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? What was the last? One of the last lines of the fifth inning is "All I know is baseball." Is all right? I know is baseball, right? Yeah, you know, and you know, basically, you could say that's almost like a Buddhist thing, where you know, what do you know? You say. And, and sometimes it gets down to something very simple, you know, um, where, you know, you travel the entire world and the only thing you really know is your home. You've seen all, you know, I mean, that's it. Or the only thing you know is your heart. I mean, that's the thing in terms of, 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 of you know, basically like what I like to sport, especially baseball. You know, one level is very exact and, and, and um, you never know what's going to happen to the last out, you know. And as I tell people, it's one of the games that begins and ends at home. You know, okay. It represents right. it represents that journey, you know. Not too many, um, you know, games are like that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, here's something that I'd love to just we have we still have time. Um, so I've talked I've talked to uh, kind of mystical religious people, mm-hmm. and I've also talked to scientists who have talked about the power and almost the magical properties that numbers can have. Mm-hmm. And in your writing, you have sometimes talked about near magical properties of letters, right? Like the letter E, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> which is right. important in your name. And you were Eugene <laughs> right. Jean, and then right. you became E. Ethelbert. Right. But you also, where is it you talked Oh, my you? mother. My mother's birthday is 9-19-19-19. I said, yeah. whoa, what's, the, well, what's that about? But you, at some point you said in the 70s, you, you looked at all the all the titles of all the great uh, black uh, magazines. And oh, they yeah, all they're all started with Ebony, Essence, Encore, and Lon. Have you reached any conclusion about the power of the letter? Uh, well, in terms, of, in terms of what? Just what it, what it all means. <laughs> what it all means? No, I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure it out. There's also this... Uh, Something you, you you wrote about how naming ourselves is what many of us did in the late 60s. Oh, yeah, we took African yeah. names and Muslim right. names and names we right. created, like musical right. improvisations. And right. Naming is also so resonant for me right. with, uh, you know, it is the original creative act. In, and that was the most difficult. And that was the most difficult job I ever had was, was naming my children. Mm. See, that was, that, was, that was really, you know, um, you know what, what am I going to name my child? What is their nickname going to be, you know? Are they going to grow out of their name or grow into their name? You know, and, and I, I look at my, my daughter. Her name is Jasmine Simone. Yes. 
you know, and that that seems to work. And she's still Jasmine. She hasn't called that Jasmine Simone. I, I keep pushing that Simone because that gives you that sort of <laughs> Nina Simone, you know, backbone. Yeah. Uh, and then my son surprised me because um, you know, his name is Nayir Gibran. I come, took Jewish Nayiri's name and merged it with, with the Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran. And he, he's never used the Gibran, but, you know, now he sent me a little text and he was like, Gibran. I said, what's this? You know, Mr. G, you know. Well, but, they're you know, just it's, doing what you did. Right, and and, and you know, names. choosing their name and something that they that you look up and and it may not resonate right now, or they might abbreviate it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's very important in terms of, especially in this world, you know, branding, yeah. you know. Yeah. And um, you know, that's a thing where I might begin another book because um, upon discovering that my last name is probably not Miller, that's another story <laughs> <laughs> that my sister said. Do you know this could be our last name? It's not Miller, oh. you know. And so um, the naming process is key. And mm-hmm. that has been the case with many immigrants coming into this country, yeah. that they assume another name. And that was probably the situation with in terms of my father. So that's another book to write about. Okay. Well, some, it's been said that your uh, memoirs are written a bit like jazz riffs, and I think this conversation's been a bit like one, but it's oh, great. Oh, yeah, right. It's yeah, been right, a lot of fun. Right. Sure, you have to do a lot of editing. <laughs> <laughs> we always do anyway. We can all use right. editing. Um, right. It's been great, and we, we you know, we, as I say, we may have some follow-up questions, and I know we've got sure. email connection with you. And, and where's just, Nancy at? Nancy's back behind the glass, and there she is. She's smiling. She's waving. Okay, tell her I said hello. Thank <laughs> I you will. for everything. She can hear you, yeah. Okay. So she has a nice font. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. there you go. She's clearly pleased by that compliment. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for coming and making the time okay. and thanks for your work. It's just All wonderful. All right. Stay well. Enjoy okay. the weekend. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.